This is the Urban Astronomer Podcast. Welcome to the sixth episode of the Urban Astronomer Podcast. As promised in earlier episodes, um, we are now bringing you the second part of our interview with Chris Stewart. Uh, He's one of the names behind the amateur telescope-making class in Johannesburg and one of the organizers of the annual Scopex Telescope and Astronomy Expo and director of the Astronomical Society of South Africa's instrumentation section. Because the interview runs quite long, there just wasn't enough space to squeeze any extra segments into this week's episode. But Chris's commentary on the design, construction and operation of telescopes and eyepieces, it's interesting enough, I'm pretty sure you won't mind too much. So we were going to talk about uh, the various types of instrument. Yes, um, well let's go there. Uh, We've been talking about reflectors and... We've, we've touched on compound instruments. Mm-hmm. So, when I say a compound telescope, I mean one which has got uh, more than one set of of active surfaces in order to produce the image. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's typically applied to reflective telescopes. So, a refractor uses lenses. The mm-hmm. lens bends the light and forms an image. Uh, Reflector uses curved mirrors in Mm -hmm. order to bend the light and form an image. The simplest of the reflectors is a Newtonian, which has a parabolic concave primary mirror. That's the one that collects the light, and that's Mm -hmm. the one that forms the image. But the image then is in front of the mirror, and if you were to put your head there to get to the image, you would be blocking out the incoming light. Mm -hmm. As a result, they put a secondary mirror, which is flat at 45 degrees, further up the tube to bring the light out to the side. Now this creates a hole in the middle of the, the beam, but every part of the mirror contributes to every part of the image. So you don't see this hole. If you step away from the telescope and look at the eyepiece, there's a, the exit pupil, which is the beam of light coming out of the eyepiece, you will be able to see that hole in it. Mm. But when you put your eye there, you don't see it. And people say, but what about the shadow of the secondary mirror that's in the middle? Well, this is very much out of focus. So we all walk around with eyelashes that are right in front of our eyes. We blink dozens of times a minute and Mm. our eyelashes we never see because they are so close that they are out of focus. I think anyone who spends just 10 minutes playing with a telescope, not trying to see something, but just playing with it and trying it out, will realize that the more when we take it out of focus, then that shadow appears. Your image itself is, is blurry. Your stars become these great big fuzzy disks yes. with that circle in the middle. And as you bring the focus in, the circle shrinks and vanishes and your picture appears. So Exactly. Right. So it's just because it is highly out of focus. That hmm. Because for astronomical purposes, uh, infinity really starts at about, let's say, 100 meters right, <laughs> to, to all intents and purposes. But the stars are really far away and... Uh, they are certainly at infinity as far as the optics are concerned. Mm. And uh, your secondary mirror is really close to the primary mirror. It's uh, sort of less than the focal length away. Mm. And so it's out of focus, you don't see it. If 
you wish to make a more compact instrument or to gain some other uh, benefits such as uh, maybe uh, the quality of the image, you can add a second curved mirror for the secondary. Typically these then would be convex mm -hmm. facing towards the primary mirror and they have the effect of amplifying which is uh, to make greater the effective focal length of the system. So uh, typically you will find that uh, the secondary will have an amplification factor of say three and if your primary mirror has got a focal length of half a meter that means that overall the instrument will end up with a focal length of about one and a half meters mm -hmm. right? but in a short tube because it's only a half meter focal length for the primary. Right. Now the classes of instrument that uh, we're talking about have all got names and most telescopes have names uh, according to who invented them. Right. So Newtonian was invented by our friend Isaac Newton. Yeah. Isaac Newton. And uh, so the uh, Cassegrain was designed by Guillaume Cassegrain, as mm -hmm. the French would pronounce it. And uh, this uses the same uh, paraboloidal primary that uh, Newtonian would use, uh, but the secondary is a convex hyperboloid. Now, to make and test the convex hyperboloid is actually quite difficult. Mm -hmm. This lies in the middle of a set of curves that you can use for these uh, compound Cassegrain derivatives, and it was probably the easiest one to get a good image back when Cassegrain was alive. Mm -hmm. uh, modern uh, professional observatories go to a more difficult design called uh, Ritchie Cretien. So Ritchie and Cretien, two people right. who designed this. And uh, this uses hyperbolic surfaces on both the primary and the secondary. This is hugely more difficult mm -hmm. to test and get correct. One only has to look at the Hubble debacle to understand this. Right. Um, for the amateur, I would suggest to go on the other side of the, uh, the curve set um, and make a Dahl Kirkham. Again, Dahl and Kirkham, two people that uh, came up with this design. And this uses an ellipsoidal concave primary, and it's quite easy to test that with great accuracy, and a spherical secondary mirror convex. Mm -hmm and it's relatively easy to make a good sphere. So this ensures that you can get good quality optics mm -hmm. and it's also much more tolerant to uh, alignment errors between the optical elements, which means that it's more likely to function close to its peak in use because it's easier to make sure that it is in alignment. So those two factors mean that it's going to perform as close as possible. So theoretically, it might not be as good as a Cassegrain, mm -hmm. but a Cassegrain that is just slightly misaligned on a secondary is not going to perform nearly as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is a, a good plot if you're wanting to go that. But, you know, there's a step that you need to take. You have to learn how to make your primary mirror. Mm -hmm. So make a Newtonian first, you will learn the process of that. Mm -hmm. Then to make a good quality convex sphere, it's not too difficult, but you have to learn how to do it. So if you're learning how to do that, you might want to go 
to a second kind of compound telescope, which is uh, oddly named a Schiefspiegler, which is German for oblique reflector, a skew mirror, mm -hmm. basically. And uh, this uh, you can make using spherical optics, and there's a specific design called the Cutter Schiefspiegler, where the primary mirror and the secondary mirror have exactly the same curve on them. Mm -hmm. So the tool that you use to make your primary mirror, you then polish as well and cut a piece out the middle and that becomes your secondary. So it's not as though you're doing a lot more work. Mm -hmm. That secondary you can put in contact with your primary mirror, which because it's a sphere you can do a null test with a simple Foucault tester and you can ensure good quality. You put the secondary in contact with that, and using interference of light, uh, Newton's rings that you probably learnt about in first year physics at yeah. university, you can see the difference in the curves between the two pieces of glass. And you can actually, with a ruler, measure the deviation and say this is a quarter wavelength out. Right? <laughs> and you can polish it to near perfect figure right. as a result. So this then teaches you to make a good convex secondary mirror okay. and so the progression of increasingly more difficult uh, uh, designs would be the Newtonian, mm. then the Schief and then the, uh, uh, the Dahl Kirkham. So now you've got these, how many is that? Two or three or four? That's three, three. three different optical designs, one the Newtonian being simple with only one curved surface to produce, mm -hmm. and the others both having two curved surfaces to produce, a convex and a concave surface. Now the Schiefspiegler, because you've tilted the components, you're seeing past the secondary, not having the secondary in the line of sight, mm -hmm. and this reduces diffraction effects, which do actually damage your image quality. Mm -hmm. So a Schiefspiegler for which is always going to be a very long focus instrument, by the way, mm -hmm. um, is absolutely superb for planetary and lunar work. It gives mm -hmm. you amazing detail. Uh, a three or four inch sheave will stack up against uh, a 10 inch Newtonian mm -hmm. in terms of the, the definition of the image. Now, if you're building something like that, I suppose the normal... Well, typically when you build your first telescope, you're going to stick it on the, the Dobsonian style, which is basically like a cannon mount, you know, a vertical swivel on top of a lazy Susan. Yes. It's but um, you're not going to do that with the long focal length. You can. Right. Yes. Because remember, uh, with the planets, they mostly stick to the equator, right. close by it, on the plane of the ecliptic. So you don't need to go very far north or south. Mm -hmm. and they're bright and easy to, to locate. So you don't need fancy methods of, of location. What you just need is a stable mount, and it's really difficult to beat an alt azimuth mount in terms of stability. Right, but you must have quite a lot of magnification of that, so it's going to need a lot of constant nudging to keep it in, to keep it in view. This is true. Of course, you can motorize these things if you wish. Even in alt azimuth mode, you can motorize it and then you just twiddle a joystick instead of physically pushing it. Mm. Uh, or you can put other little slow motion devices on that you can just turn a knob every now and then to, to get it back into the field of view. Mm. Would you... I mean, how, how hard is it? Something I've wanted to do myself, and this is one of those projects, you know, that's 
you know your skills are currently over here and the project is all the way over there, but it's in, in the queue. Building an equatorial mount then, if you wanted. Oh, there are many ways that you can build a really effective equatorial mount with uh, simple materials that you can find and with the minimum of tools and mechanical expertise, mm-hmm. as long as you're prepared to listen to instruction, of course. Uh, because, ah, I see that's my problem. Mate. Because <laughs> the principles, <laughs> right. uh, the physics, mm. uh, doesn't care what you think, right? It just yeah. has to do this, and if you deviate from it, well, then you will have a suboptimal result. Right. So uh, we've had a lot of success with uh, what we call a equatorial disk mounts. So mm-hmm. basically, you use a system of bearings to make a disk float. So the disk is constrained, constrained to only rotate about its center. It can't uh, flop in any other direction. Mm-hmm. It can just rotate about its center. So use kinematic principles. That's just mm-hmm. a, a fancy mechanical term to say that uh, uh, any object in space has got six degrees of freedom. It can go forwards, backwards, up, down, left, right, and mm-hmm. it can rotate about those three axes as well. So that's your pitch and roll. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you put five points of contact on it, you've taken away five degrees of freedom and only one is left. So if you're judicious about what you do, mm-hmm. then uh, you can constrain it to just rotate about its center. So now, you've got something that's relatively compact and because it's a disc um, it's got a relatively large diameter and that means you don't need fancy heavy duty bearings and shafts that can flex and so Mm. on that you've got to support. Oh, so your bearings are around the edge as opposed to... Exactly, and they don't have to be big bearings. Right. And it doesn't have to weigh much. So typically we go to a scrapyard and and get a... or, or to a automotive place and get a, a brake disc mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be one that is perfect you see because we can just stick it on a lathe and through the edge mm-hmm. and it uh, doesn't matter if it's got grooves in it we'll deal with all of that because they're all going to be concentric anyway right and uh, that's also got a nice little boss that sticks out above the plane of the disc uh, which is beneficial in some ways. Just occurred to me that means that disc could then double as your setting circles. Uh, not really as setting circles, but uh, well, uh, if you you can engrave marking signs and have a needle. You, you down could. Uh, there, there are other ways, of course, of marking it. But um, there are two different ways to use mechanical setting circles, and mm. uh, the one is basic but requires more effort on the part of the user and others more sophisticated and requires less effort on the mm-hmm. part of the user. So uh, you can have your engraved markings, or however you choose to mark it, uh, attached directly to the axis, mm-hmm. or you can have a slip ring which can be moved with respect to the axis so you can, you can adjust it. Mm-hmm. Now, if it's firmly attached the axis and it always moves with the axis then as you rotate to follow the sky you will get uh, a change in the reading from moment to moment mm. but you're still looking at the same object well you'd be so aiming it at the hour angle then of whatever you're looking that at that is correct that's, yes yeah. so so it's not you'd have to the, do some sums it's not <laughs> the right ascension that you're using but the hour angle mm. of the time so you've got to do a bit of calculation 
using time and mm -hmm. of course with base 60 that's just a bit irritating mm -hmm. but uh, you know calculators are cheap eh? mm -hmm. and uh, then you've got to make your moves within a relatively short period of time so that uh, you know as the clock ticks your your result doesn't get too far from the reality yeah. uh, but mostly you would do star hopping instead you know, look for bright objects and then you just like move in on the the target which you might not be able to see but you've got some markers in the sky mm -hmm. that you will use as reference points so I don't think setting circles are a necessity I don't think so either I mention them because mm. commercial telescopes always have them and I tried for years and years and years to use them and I never had any luck um, I'm sure partly it was not really understanding the, the geometry of what was happening yeah, it's not difficult, also, but you do have to get to grips with it. And you've got to get your alignment. Your polar alignment has to be spot on. And I, yeah, I just, the, the, eventually the hassle was, was, was so much, it was much simpler to just get your atlas out, or these days open up your, your stellarium or something and just get a visual and just compare back and forth, which makes star hopping so easy, by the way, uh, these days. Having yeah. a live view of it right next to you, the only downside is, of course, that destroys your, your night, night vision. <laughs> but, but if you're doing photography, you, as long as you can see well enough to find the target, then that's fine. It doesn't matter if you can see, as long as the camera right. can. Well, photography, of course, requires far more precise polar alignment than visual use does. It does, yeah. You can be very far off and still have a, a pleasant experience visually, but um, photographically, it's very unforgiving. Yeah. So that's the mounts then. Um, what other accessories? I mean, things like finder scopes, I'm sure those are easy to make. Um, yes, you can even make red dot finders as well if you want. It's not, mm. not very difficult at all. Um, a good finder is pretty much a necessity. Now, you can often find broken binoculars that mm. you can salvage parts from. You get a good eyepiece and you get a good objective lens and you just need a bit of PVC pipe from the plumbing shop. And lo and behold, you've got your finder. Hmm. Uh, you can either have a straight through finder or one that's got a angled view typically 90 degrees so you can look in sideways hmm. as we get older and our necks and backs start to complain more then uh, the, the appeal of the right angle finder is, uh, is heightened but the fact of the matter is being able to use a finder requires some expertise you have to develop some techniques and it's very effective to keep both your eyes open, look through the finder with one, and mm -hmm. look straight at the sky with the other. Now you've got two images that are arriving in your brain, mm -hmm. and the one is inverted because of the optics, because the less elements that you put into the, the telescope, the, the less light is absorbed in the system, and then the fainter the object that you can see. So mm -hmm. it's normal for astronomical telescopes to go that route, and the same for finder telescopes. So the finder will give you this inverted uh, image and your eye is seeing everything the right way up. So this is initially a bit confusing, but you will learn to merge the two images. And when you see that the part in the finder is now touching the part that your naked eye is seeing, then you know that it is in fact looking at the right place. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a little technique that uh, just I don't know, three or four experiments and you'll get used to mm. it. I remember being taught that years ago and it took 
It's very unintuitive, but quite simple to learn once you once you make that effort mm-hmm. and you understand what's what you're actually asking your your eyes to do. And, and it is very effective. It's it's uh, similar to if you've ever done any shooting. Um, you keep both eyes open because the yes. view of the finder is quite narrow. It's quite restricted. Yes. Much wider than the the main scope, of course, but it's still not necessarily enough. I always find I have to do a rough sighting just along the tube to make sure I'm looking at the right part of the sky. Then I can get to the finder. And yes, well, that is normal. Mm. That can be painful when you're looking at the zenith, trying to get underneath to to to, to line up. Mm. Well, this is why uh, knowing the sky does help. Mm. And, uh, you know, if you, you have the money, a bit of automation doesn't go amiss. But I wouldn't call it a universal panacea. You know, go-to-scopes yeah. are wonderful, especially in the city where you've got less markers in the sky that you can navigate from. Mm-hmm. But uh, it requires quite good setup for you to have uh, a useful experience. No, I think that there's no substitute for learning the sky. You know, the, the automation mm-hmm. only goes so far, but uh, if you want to be a skilled observer, you, you have to put in the hours and, and mm-hmm. learn the sky as best you can. It makes life so much easier afterwards, and it becomes natural after a while. Mm-hmm. But you have to work at it. It takes time to learn your mm-hmm. way around. And, mm-hmm. In terms of accessories, you know, there are three halves to a telescope. There's the telescope, mm-hmm. there's the mount, mm-hmm. and there's the eyepiece. Uh-huh. I say three halves because each of them is really important. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have a good quality image from your scope, then it doesn't matter what eyepiece you put in, no matter how expensive it might be, you're not going to get a good image. Mm-hmm. If you can't hold the telescope steady, you're not going to get a good image. Mm-hmm. But if you've got the good image, you need a good eyepiece. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, eyepieces have become quite inexpensive. They have frightening price tags for the more exotic ones. But the fact is that never in history has so much good quality optics been available at a really affordable price. So what would I recommend as a starter? In a previous era, we would have said, oh, get yourself a Kellner and then maybe an orthoscopic. Mm-hmm. And uh, today I would say, just get a Plossel. A Plossel is good enough for almost anything, and it's so good mm-hmm. that in the 50s and 60s it was not believed that Plossels would become economically viable for the amateur because they were right. considered to be too exotic. And now that is the entry level, should we say. Mm-hmm. Um, rather put your money where it belongs. If you're going to buy things, don't... Don't buy cheap eyepieces because mm. a good eyepiece will outlive you. Right, so eyepieces, we said plossels are mm. not quite good. There are other designs, of course. And uh, with the marvels of modern CNC machining and mm-hmm. uh, uh, the computer design of optical elements, they've been able to make eyepieces that were unimaginable just 20 years ago. Mm they tend to be expensive the more exotic they are and they they're like grenades they're huge (laughs) and they weigh a lot and that'll put your telescope out of balance something that people don't usually consider Mm. Uh, but a good eyepiece is is worth something you always keep it is anybody making their own eyepieces oh yes 
Mm-hmm. You can make Plossel type eyepieces, uh, more accurately a symmetrical eyepiece, mm-hmm. um, very, very simply. Um, you find these little uh, 8x21 binoculars mm-hmm. all over the place. At, Those little straight-through ones. Yes, mm-hmm. and they've got uh, roof prisms inside them, but um, they tend to break. They're not mm-hmm. that robust. And uh, they go out of collimation and people just toss them aside. If you take the two objectives from that and you put them with the convex sides, in other words, outer mm-hmm. elements, facing one another, spaced like a millimeter apart, you want them almost touching but not actually touching, mm-hmm. um, voila, you've got yourself a nice plossal eyepiece. Right. Uh, typically those would give you something about a 40 millimeter uh, focal length, effectively, at the end, mm-hmm. and that makes a very nice low power, relatively wide angle. Uh, eyepiece. I've got to remember that. Right, mm. and it can cost you absolutely zero if you just scrounge well enough. Mm. So, uh, 40 millimeter is generally about as long a focal length eyepiece as you would want, mm-hmm. and the Plossel design gives you uh, sort of a 40 degree uh, apparent field of view, which is acceptable. Now, Jeez. when you when you put it next to the modern 110 degree super wide angle, mm. which is like looking through a porthole, right. uh, then you can say, well, this is no good. The fact of the matter, it is good. Firstly, it's about as wide a field as most instruments will allow you, really, mm. uh, because of vignetting, because of uh, uh, constraints in the optical path uh, right. before the light gets out of the telescope and into the eyepiece. And secondly, the human eye only has about a half a degree field of good vision. Mm. So if you hold your arm out to its full extent and you look at your little fingernail, that's about half a degree. Uh, The size of the moon, in other words. You can cover the moon with the tip of your little finger. And yet we seem to see the world in high definition. And that's because the brain integrates little fragments and builds up a mental image. Right, because your eye is constantly scanning across. That's it's not right. just exactly. Fixed. Now, mostly when we're looking through the eyepiece, we're not rolling our eyes around to look at the periphery. Mm-hmm. And the super wide angle eyepieces, the edge definition is not as good as at the center. Mm-hmm. Whereas with a plossel, it's pretty decent all the way around. I'm not trying to dissuade anybody from buying a fancy eyepiece. I'm just saying let's um, know what we're getting and have the correct expectations. Mm. It's not necessary to spend huge money to get an acceptable experience. Let me ask one more thing, getting away from making a telescope. If that same hypothetical person came up to you on a limited budget, let's not put a number on it, but say, let's just say every rand has to really count um, and alternatively, somebody comes to you who's is not constrained, but again, isn't doesn't want to just throw money away. All right. So there are basically three things that I would consider here. Uh, the beginner typically doesn't have a particular passion for some specific subject because there are many objects one can look at: open mm-hmm. star clusters. Uh, globular clusters, uh, nebulae, other deep sky objects like that, planetary nebulae. 
the planets, right? There, there's a, a wide variety of objects that you might want to look at. And as a beginner, to constrain yourself so that you can only look at one kind of object optimally is probably not the best idea. Mm. Now, the beginner also doesn't really know his way around the sky. Uh, if, if he did, he wouldn't be a beginner, you see. Right, yeah. So you've got to make it easy to use. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. Now, easy can be either because you're using a mechanically simple arrangement that is intuitive, or you have the assistance of built-in intelligence. Right. So, for a beginner who's strapped for cash, I would say something like a six-inch Newtonian telescope on the so-called Dobsonian Old Azimuth Mount mm-hmm. is the best value for money that you can get. Mm-hmm. It will give you access to more objects than you can comprehensively observe in a lifetime. And, of course, the word comprehensively is the key there. Yeah. Just skimming here, there, everywhere doesn't really teach you to see. Mm-hmm. But truly, it will keep you happy for a very long time. It's also convenient. You just take it, you put it down on the ground, and immediately you're observing. Mm-hmm. So there's a great convenience factor. If you just got a few minutes and the sky is okay, you just drag it outside, you're observing, and then you take it back when you're finished. And the other For beginner, the rich one? The rich beginner, I would say that he could have two options. He could go for a really decent refractor, and here I would suggest an apochromat, which is a three-element typically, or at least has exotic glass. Mm-hmm. And this gives you exceptionally good color rendition. Now, a reflector is an apochromat because it reflects all wavelengths of light the same, all mm. colors of light. But refractors are not like that. They act like prisms, and they pull the light apart into its uh, mm. constituent colors, uh, a process called dispersion. And then they have to put it back again at the image so that uh, everything looks normal. Which is why they've got the different, color, different types of glasses and the different elements. That's correct. Right. Different shapes and different types of glass. Mm. So an apochromat is uh, a super mm-hmm. refractor. An achromat is an adequate refractor. Right. right? And uh, so I would say a small uh, apo would be very nice. If you want something larger, well, they become, even for rich people, unaffordable very quickly as they go large. Mm-hmm. So then uh, a maxot of cassegrain be a nice compact thing, but most likely a Schmidt Cassegrain, mm-hmm. uh, maybe an 8-inch, right, to start with. It's a convenient size, mm-hmm. and it certainly gives you access to a lot. It's very versatile. You can put a camera on it. And these days, typically, such instruments will come with a go-to electronic brain that uh, you just uh, pointed at a few stars uh, that it generally even selects yeah. for you. Uh, so a relatively simple setup, you, you press a few buttons and then it's got a GPS receiver, it knows where you are and it knows mm-hmm. what the time is and it does all the maths. And then after that you've got probably a 60,000 object database in the computer that uh, you can just press buttons and it'll go and do a fairly good job of locating the objects for you. Mm-hmm. Um, this gives you more time to view. but. 
of course you have to put in the effort to set it up in the first place yeah. and so it's not like a Dobsonian type mount where you just take it and you put it on the ground now you've got to level it you've got to find out where's north mm-hmm. or south and a few other little bits like that it just takes a bit longer to get going of course you do still need to know the sky well enough to find those stars that it wants you to point at in the beginning yes uh, the ones with the more sophisticated computer arrangement mm-hmm. um, typically have a built-in uh, electronic compass and uh, an electronic level and so it knows what the orientation of the telescope is versus the celestial sphere. So does it just buzz for a bit and then it points up and says, okay, take me to the nearest star that I'm nearly pointing at? Uh, It even goes beyond that. Some of them will have a secondary telescope bolted on, like a finder telescope, Mm -hmm. with a camera attached (laughs) that it will look at the star field and it will recognize the stars Mm-hmm. and it will then orient itself accordingly. So you just put it down and it'll spend two or three minutes buzzing and whirring and moving a bit here and there, mm-hmm. and then it'll go beep, and now it's ready for use. Uh, this is spectacularly amazing. What an age we live in. Eh? <laughs> it, it truly is. Uh, I wanted just electronic setting circles for about 20 years, yeah. and the technology wasn't there at that time. Uh, I was wanting to build it myself, but it was just such an insurmountable project actually in terms of what's accessible to the amateur you know yeah um you can't afford high precision shafting coders and things Mm -hmm. but these days this is all built in the the computing power overcomes a lot of the mechanical deficiencies Mm. right Uh, like motor cars you know we've got uh, cruise control we've got uh, stability uh, stability programs all these things that uh, make it just so much easier to drive than ever before right Hmm. You know, I'm out of things to ask you. Is there anything things worth adding? Yeah, we can just touch again on eyepieces. You know, we mm. we looked at um, the fact that you might want to start with a, a medium focal length eyepiece, typically something around 25 millimeter focal length, mm. as your primary eyepiece. Yeah. And then the next thing, a good low power eyepiece, say a 32 or 40 millimeter eyepiece, which will help you to see wider fields of view for, for larger mm-hmm. uh, extended objects and also to help uh, find objects because it gives a larger field of view, you're more likely to have it in the field than, it, than mm-hmm. not, right? And then finally a high power eyepiece. But, but what is low power and what is high power? We say maybe a good high power eyepiece would be about a nine millimeter and they, uh, a plosol or an orthoscopic would be good. Mm-hmm. But a sensible choice of these eyepieces really depends on the focal ratio of the telescope on the one side and what is the likely diameter of your eye's pupil when you're observing on the other. So the reason for this is that low power will produce a larger exit pupil. And if the exit pupil, a beam of light coming out of the eyepiece, is larger than the pupil of your eye, then it means two things. Firstly, a lot of the light is lost. It doesn't actually get into your eye because the pupils stop down. And mm. so that's as though you've just chopped the size of your mirror in half because you've thrown away half the light, you see? Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing, that if you have a compound instrument... Uh, Schmidt-Cassegrain, then you've got this shadow of the secondary in the middle of this beam coming out. And this will be on the best part of your eye. 
mm -hmm. your uh, cornea is not equally good all over. Mm -hmm. And that means that you've got this annulus of light coming around, uh, around this central obstruction and is only on the periphery of your pupil. Mm -hmm. Now, by the time it gets to an image, it's all back into a point, but that point is now fuzzier than it otherwise would have been. Oh, yeah. So there is why a good telescope of uh, refracting nature, which doesn't have the central obstruction or something like a sheaf, right, mm -hmm. the oblique reflector, these unobstructed designs tend to perform better than expected. It's because of the nature of the coupling between the telescope and your eye. Right. right. So if you are young, you will find uh, a small kid, his mm -hmm. pupil might even go as far as 10 millimeters in diameter. Mm -hmm. In relatively short order, this will drop to about seven millimeters. But once you pass your thirties, it starts to get less and less. And this is because the elasticity of the materials making up your eye has degraded. Right. And so when you're in your forties and so on, then probably you're down to about five millimeters maximum mm. pupil uh, under good dark conditions. So to provide an exit pupil from the telescope that is larger than that with your low-power eyepiece um, is not a good coupling of the, the right, instrument right. to your eye. So you need to look at that. Now, uh, the formulae for determining the exit pupil are, is, is really quite simple. It's, um, if you know what the magnification is that your eyepiece is giving, which you can work out easily from the focal length of the telescope and the focal length of the eyepiece, mm -hmm. and equally, magnification is your entrance pupil divided by your exit pupil. So you can work out for any focal length eyepiece on your instrument mm -hmm. what the exit pupil will be. Mm -hmm. But it's simpler to work on the F-ratio. Now you'll find that with the prevalence of Schmidt-Cassel grains, which almost invariably are running at F10, mm -hmm. all right, the same set of eyepieces will work equally well whether you've got a 4-inch or a 16-inch because the focal ratio remains the same. Right. If you instead using, say, uh, um, an F5.6 apochromat mm -hmm. or maybe even an F4 uh, reflecting telescope, mm -hmm. right, now you've got a, a whole different mix. And so you need to look at perhaps a different set of eyepiece focal lengths to get the same exit pupils. Right. Your highest power, people talk about uh, so many times magnification per inch of, of yeah, mirror diameter and so on. That is okay, but it's, it's inferior to hmm. considering what the exit pupil diameter should be. Right. So a high power exit pupil would be about one and a half millimeters. Okay. If it gets smaller than that, now you're getting to exceptionally high powers, mm -hmm. right? You can go under good conditions with a good instrument to maybe a half a millimeter diameter exit pupil. Mm -hmm. But that's it, eh? right. right? And so usually those are quite short focal length eyepieces. Mm. Mostly, you won't use eyepieces below about nine millimeter focal length mm -hmm. on most amateur telescopes, apart from some exceptionally good times when you, you might happen to have a very stable atmosphere. Yeah. It's not that it can't do it, it's just that the image quality breaks down and the, the viewing experience is degraded. Mm -hmm. All right, yeah. High powers, 
also bring up all the floaters and so on, the oh, things in your inside eye. your eye. Mm. It's like the ophthalmoscope, the optician shines in your eye to see what's going on in there. It does exactly that. Mm. And then you can even see the, the veins on your retina. And then, like uh, you know, the chaparellis of time gone by, you can <laughs> you can see yes, Martian canally, uh, yeah. canal, canals and uh, yeah, but it, but it's actually structure within your eye that you are seeing. Right. So, that, but that's that's uh, ultra high power. Huh? Mm. All right then. Um, yeah, I think I'm out of stuff to ask for. I don't know if there's right. so, something that's so. I mentioned that our telescope making class in Johannesburg has been running for 25 years. Uh, we were quite proud of our accomplishments and we had a couple of open days where people could come and see what we did. And then we decided to make it a little bit bigger than that. So along the lines of uh, Stellafane and other well-known yeah. uh, extravaganzas that you find elsewhere in the world, uh, we developed... Uh, an exhibition that we call ScopeX, so that's of course telescope exhibition for right, sure. Yeah. Um, but it's not just telescopes, it's uh, telescopes and related things, astrophotography, mm-hmm. um, uh, astronomy in general, and, and related disciplines, even more recently things like 3D printers and whatnot, because these things are fascinating to people mm-hmm. who build telescopes. So. Well, there's been a radio ham uh, stand there consistently for a couple of years yes. now. So. Well, in fact, there's even been radio telescopes there, but it's not obvious that it's not just a satellite dish, you see, yes, yes. right? <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, so it's uh, one day in the year uh, where the amateur telescope makers show off their handiwork. We get uh, speakers in, sometimes from abroad, to talk on a wide range of uh, astronomy and telescope-related topics. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've had Mike Melville, the um, pilot of Spaceship uh, One Mm -hmm. uh, from Scaled Composites that won the Ansari X Prize for the first uh, commercial, like civilian, Mm -hmm. um, spacecraft to reach an altitude suitable enough to say that it was space. So technically a suborbital flight they managed to... A suborbital flight, but mm-hmm. nevertheless uh, it, it hit Well, that's no small feat. I mean, that's... It's, it's a huge feat. <laughs> yeah. Right? So uh, Mike Melville was a South African-born individual who, who never got a good education, but he mm-hmm. built a plane and impressed uh, the designer of the plane right. Right, to the extent that he was taken on as a test pilot and uh, he was the first civilian. Amazing. Right? Um, South African guy. You know. mm. um, we've had uh, uh, the world's most famous uh, astrophotographer. Um, oh, Terry Legal. No, I'm talking about David Malan, ah. right? Who almost single-handedly uh, invented many of the techniques of uh, scientific imaging, right? Mm. Uh, so he came from Australia. We've Recently, I had Terry Legault, a very good astrophotographer, also mm-hmm. um, uh, is renowned for taking images of uh, this, the space station and, right, and so yeah. on. From he's famous to me, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, yeah, a host of uh, local uh, mm-hmm. luminaries as well, uh, talking about SALT and uh, the South African Large Telescope down in Sutherland. Mm-hmm and uh, Meerkat, uh, the progenitor of the uh, uh, square kilometre array, mm-hmm. and uh, so on and so forth. So, 
Um, we've had uh, really good lectures. So this is an annual thing then? At the it's, uh, we just had our 15th Scopex. Mm-hmm. Um, the future, well, it, it always depends on people, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll have to see how it goes. It's, it's uh, a nice, exciting day for the, the people in the astronomical community. It's quite interesting for visitors who just have a mild interest. They come in the evening for the star party, look through amateur and commercial telescopes at the sky, yeah. and uh, gives uh, telescope vendors a, a, a captive audience uh, mm. that uh, can come and inspect things that otherwise they, they might only be able to look online to find because, uh, you know, it's not as though we've got a lot of big telescope shops here. Yeah. And uh, all in all, it's a fun day, but it's a lot of work mm. to make it happen. So each year is a little bit uh, fraught, and afterwards the organizers can walk away drained and say, okay, we pulled it off again. Mm -hmm. It would be nice to see some new blood assisting, so volunteers. Right, well then, how can they get hold of you if they want to volunteer? Well, what they should do is go to the website www.scopex.co.za and there they will see contact details for Lerica Cross and they can volunteer to her. She's yeah. the main organizer of the event, the, mm-hmm. the overall coordinator. She does a good job. I think she's a project manager in real life, isn't this she? This is correct, yes. Yeah. And she brings a wealth of experience in that domain to bear on this. Uh, you know, all such events take uh, uh, the willingness of people and the expertise of people mm-hmm. and the a lot of hard work. So, uh, you know, Larica was awarded the Gill Medal for mm-hmm. her contributions to astronomy outreach in South Africa, largely based on untold hours of her professional expertise, freely given to uh, the process of making scopics happen. Mm-hmm. Lesser people such as myself, of course, support in the background. Mm-hmm. All right, well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Mm-hmm.